0: Um, so, again, my name is Kelsey, and I'm the director of youth and young adult ministries here. Um, I grew up coming to Mount Herman, though, and so I grew up coming to the child care program, day camp, youth program, the young adult one. Every summer, since I was three and a half, I was here with my family for a week of family camp. And then, right after I graduated from uh, college, I went and served on the summer stuff up at Ponderosa Lodge, and I've been there. Um, since then. I came for one summer and that was um, 11 years ago. So um, I basically never left. But um, I love working with young adults. Um, I love learning about them. And it's really dynamic because uh, our world and our culture is always changing. And so the things that students are facing is different year to year, as well as the young adults and the world that they're entering um, and trying to find their place in it. Um, I'm the second of four kids. Um, so I am a hardcore middle child. Um, the middle child syndrome is real and I have it. <laughs> and um, I, I love how different um, all my siblings and I are. My parents say that. Um, so one of the things to know about this seminar is I am not a parent. Um, so I don't know what it is like to be a parent to any of the different age groups. I know what it's like to be a young adult in today's world, um, and I know what it's like to work with the young adults and see some trends and see some things that they're going through, Um, but my hope in this seminar, it's not to give like a four-step, here's all the things that you should do. Really, my hope is that it gives some information, it gives some thoughts, um, and that there's further conversations that happen outside of this, whether it's you with your young adult children or grandchildren, whether it's a young adult here who wants to have a conversation with their parents. Um, my hope is that there's further conversations about the things that we talk about rather than just here's four things to, to do afterwards. So it'll be a lot of conversations, but I often will get questions from parents. And I, I will say often when I'm on the phone with parents of campers, I have your students for a week, sometimes two weeks. Um, I have your young adult children for a, a summer, so three months but then you have them for life. (laughs) And so the perspective that you have is different. So um, just wanna recognize that and know that there will be some things that I'll be able to answer and some that I'll um, just set you up with other resources here at Mount Hermon if you have some questions of the parenting side of things. Um, For young adults, Um, My parents, they actually came to this seminar um, when they were here for family camp during week four, and uh, my parents have said that my siblings and I, us in our 20s, Um, that that was their least favorite season to parent. (laughs) Um, I know, so sorry if that's discouraging to any of you. (laughs) But what they told told us, because all my siblings and I are about three years apart. So at one point, my older sister was 29, on her way to 30, I was 26, my younger brother was 23, and my youngest sister, who's currently working at Redwood, was 20. And so they had us in just every scope of the 20s. And my parents have said that the childhood years is exhausting in like the physical aspect of it, of um, there's just a lot of activity, a lot of energy, there's always things to be doing. The teenagers are exhausting because of some of the angst and the rebelliousness um, that was trying in some different ways. Um, But then the young adult years has been really hard for them to feel like they're sitting on the sidelines just hoping and begging God that he'll help us um, along our way into adulthood, and for them to figure out as parents, what does it look like to, to still be parents, but now these children who we've cared for are now adults themselves. And how do we let them be adults, and how do we coach and give advice, but also let them make their own decisions? My parents have said that it's been the hardest for them. Um, so I uh, look forward one day, if I have kids, to um, have them be in the teenagers, because I love those years. I love junior high and high school but I also know like, uh, it's gonna be different if I'm a parent one day. So um, some things to know in looking at what our current young adult generation is, it's really a split between the millennials and Gen Z. And so to better understand the world that millennials and Gen Z um, young adults are in, each generation kind of affects the next one. And so the boomers affected Gen X, Gen X affected Millennials, Millennials affect Gen Z, Gen Z will kind of set up whatever generation is going to follow. So to better understand Gen Z and Millennials, um, we also need to kind of look at the generations that preceded. it. And so for boomers, um, boomers is anyone who was born between 1944 to 1964, um, so the boom after uh, World War II, um, they some of the trends within the boomer generation are the things that were happening culturally. Um, So the post-World War II optimism, the Cold War and the hippie movement, um, any of those cultural things that were happening in the world at the time really affected the boomers. Um, Unexpectedly, this generation is seeing a really uh, big spike in student loan um, and a lot of debt within student loan. Um, The boomers as a, as a generation kind of stereotype, believe that you should set up your children for success, but they don't plan on leaving any inheritance. Um, that's not everybody, but there are many who um, want to do what they need to do to set up their children, but don't plan on leaving inheritance for them afterwards. There's some really interesting financial trends, um, which we'll talk about as we get to the Gen Z as well. Um, They're big consumers of traditional media, newspaper, magazines. They want to go to the actual bank to make a transaction. Um, But they also have a big spike in Facebook accounts. About 90% of boomers have a Facebook account, which is also why no Gen Zers have a Facebook account. (laughs) Um, We'll get to that. Um, For Gen X, they're the ones that came after. And so it was anyone who was born between 1965 to 1979, so currently anyone between the ages of 40 to 54, that's Gen X. they still read uh, newspapers, magazines, have a kind of traditional media consumption, but they're also becoming a little bit more digitally, digital, digitally savvy um, using uh, Facebook and other social media um, standpoints. Some shaping events for this is the end of the Cold War, um, the rise of personal computing, um, and the, they feel often lost between the two generations. People talk a lot about the boomers and a lot about millennials, and they um, sometimes feel lost between the two. Um, Gen X right now in that age group, they're trying to raise a family, they're trying to pay off their student loans, um, they're trying to take care of their aging parents, Um, it puts a high strain on their financial resources, and so the, the financial strain is really, really big for Gen X, and that kind of shapes their generation as well. All right, so let me get to millennials, or uh, sometimes referred to as Gen Y, because of following Gen X and before Gen Z, but more more candidly, they're referred to as the millennials. And that term was actually coined um, back in 1989 um, by two fellows who looked ahead to the generation that was going to experience the turn of the millennium, so the Y2K and how that was going to be a really impactful cultural scenario um, that took place for, for that generation. And so they're referred to as the millennials. Right now, it's anyone born between 1980 to 1994, so they're in the age range of 25 to 39. And so that's where the millennials are such a large generation, and there's such a difference within it um, that they often will break that group into two groups because those who are on the older end of it, um, social media plays a big big part of this. So for those on the older end of the millennials, they didn't have social media until like college or post-college. So it still affected their young adult years, but not in the way of the younger millennials who had it by junior high. And so, and how that really um, was part of their adolescent years, not just their young adult years. Um, And each generation, the first couple years will often bleed into the next one. And so, the the older millennials kind of adopt a little bit more of the Gen X um, personality in some ways. And the younger millennials kind of bleed into the Gen Z. So, there's a little bit of some fluidity between those two as well. Uh, For millennials... um, this generation is very comfortable on the, their mobile devices. Um, some of them will often still use a computer for any like large purchases or things like that, but they're growing more comfortable with um, using the mobile devices. Um, some of the big cultural things that happen that shaped this generation is the Great Recession, um, seeing the financial and economic strain, the technical explosion of the internet, and 9-11. I still remember, I'm a millennial, I still remember like detail um, to the day of 9-11, uh, waking up to go to school, my mom running up the stairs, pulling our family together to give us a heads up what was going on. I remember what I, what I was wearing that day, which is kind of weird. Um, I remember listening to the, on the radio and going to school being like, the world has changed and it's no longer a safe place. What's interesting is that in our next election it will be the first time that there's going to be a pool of voters who were not alive during a 9-11. And they're realizing that politically that shapes what their worldview is um, and how they're gonna vote um, because they weren't alive during that time. It's similar to how my parents, they have a similar remembrance of when JFK was shot. They can remember how that, what that felt like and how that shaped them. Um, for me, it's 9-11 for the younger generation. It's gonna be other things. Um, so that definitely uh, shapes them. Millennials are currently entering the workforce. Um, they have a very high amount of student debt And so it is delaying any major purchases, like buying a home or having a wedding because they have such high student debt. Uh, Because of the financial instability, millennials prefer to have um, experience and access rather than ownership. So the concept for some millennials of ever owning a home is just foreign to them, so they'd rather rent. They'd rather put their money towards traveling, having experiences, having access to different things, more so than investing and owning something later. Just because financial instability is just part of part of their life. Um, millennials uh, also have a ver- have very little patience for um, uh, inefficiency or poor service. I think it's because they've grown up with you can have it when you want it. You can buy something on Amazon, have it delivered to you right away. So that's also a trend that we'll talk a little bit more about as we get to millennials. Uh, for Gen Z, it's anyone who's born between 95 to 2015. So currently, Gen Z is anyone who's four to 24. <laughs> so that's a big, big span. So for Gen Z, it's the, the older end of Gen Z that are the current young adults. Um, they've also been referred to as the I generation um, because of the iPhone. Um, Millennials are also referred to as the me generation, definitely narcissism um, plays a, plays itself out in millennials, but the I generation would be Gen Z, or the post-millennials. There's a couple different terms for it, but Gen Z is the one that's been um, sticking a little bit more. Um, on average, a F- a Gen Z received their first cell phone or mobile device at the age of 10, um, but they grew up playing on their parents' tablets and phones. Um, and so, that trend of looking at a screen is something that they've adopted from watching their parents on their screens. Um, They spend on average about three hours a day on a mobile device. I really think it's probably higher now after um, this material was gathered. Um, They live in a very hyper-connected world um, that plays into, they feel connected to everything that's going on in, in the world, but they also experience such a strong degree of loneliness which plays itself out in um, suicide rates, anxiety, things like that. Um, what's interesting is that Gen Z has watched as Millennials and Gen X as they have gone through such financial instability that they're seeing financial trends for, the, for some of the Gen Z, the ones who are able to. Um, they are actually uh, showing a lot more of financial stability or interest in having some financial stability. So they think that fiscally they're going to be a much more conservative uh, spending generation because they've seen the strain watching the other generations. Um, many more of them are at a young age opening a savings account than is normal. Um, they, uh, some of the shaping events for Gen Z, uh, smartphones, social media, just the access that they have in the hyperconnected world, they've never known a country not at war. Which is really interesting. So that has shaped their worldview in some really big ways as well. Um, and then seeing the financial strain of their parents. One of the things that was pointed out and or asked about at um, an earlier session of this, um, this summer, was um, a parent asking about the lack of perseverance that they see in some in some ways in young adults. And I think that that is that that is true. And I think some of it has to do with the uh, participation award. <laughs> um, For millennials and for Gen Z, many of them have grown up being awarded just for showing up, just for participating, for doing a piece of it, you get an award. And so now those millennials are entering the workforce thinking, I should get a gold star and a promotion just for showing up on time. (laughs) And trying to give some coaching of, uh, no, the world looks a little different. You don't just get a participation award for doing what's expected of you. (laughs) Um, There's a lack of perseverance in if it doesn't boost my uh, spirit, if it doesn't bring me joy, if it's not something where I feel celebrated and like wanted in this, I'm going to go find something else that does. So there's a lot of, there's so much choice that is out in our world um, that for many millennials, um, and then it's kind of been adopted by Gen Z as well, if they don't Get what they want immediately or the satisfaction, they'll go find something else that does. And so we see that play out in the workforce, career, and education. We also see that play out in the church um, when they're volunteering or serving and realizing, ah, this is a little too hard, I'm gonna jump and do something else instead. Um, we see that in relationships, in marriage, divorce, things like that. Um, and so this lack of perseverance and always more choices. It's really interesting, and there's a, um, a book that I'll recommend later. It's called The Defining Decade, and it talks about the 20s and how using your 20s um, well will set up how you step into your 30s and 40s and beyond. But what she points out um, in this book is that there's this theory called the jar theory, and if you um, go to the store knowing that you need jam, and the store has out 20 different options of jam, and you can sample every single one of them. And you sample every single one, you'll end up leaving the store without getting jam because you're overwhelmed at the choices. Too many choices, too hard to make a decision, so I'm just gonna leave and not get jam. But if you put out six choices, someone will be able to sample the ones that they want to, and then they'll leave with the jam that they came for. And so, In a world where it's often said you can be anything that you want to be, you can do anything that you want to do, it has then led to many millennials not doing anything because they're overwhelmed at their choices. And so instead saying, you know, pick six. What are six things that you think that you could do? She also talks about how it takes about 10,000 hours to become proficient in something, to really become well-versed and to do something really, really well. You can't spend 10,000 hours becoming good at a number of different things. You just don't have that many hours in the day. And so to really choose and to almost limit your choices will help students actually make choices. Interesting. Um, One of the other things that my sister has pointed out, she's a a mom to a nine-year-old and then to twins who are six. And so she's, you know, right, she's deep in the elementary age right now and going to um, parent-teacher conferences and everything. And so what she's heard from other parents is that it's no longer the helicopter parent who's hovering over their children and wanting to make sure that they're okay. It's now the lawnmower parent who's just paving the way for their students to come. Nice, clean-cut trail right behind them. And so what we're also seeing is the coddling, there's a lot of books out there right now, the coddling of students. And because they never have to work at something, they never have to struggle, they never have to pick themselves up and dust themselves off and try again, because everything is coming easy to some of these students, um, the coddling, it is making um, a really interesting trend in this generation of there's no perseverance. When something is hard, they give up, rather than persevering and making it through. To better understand for um, uh, young adults, we first look at what are the stages that they go through in adolescence to then become a young adult. Um, Adolescence is just, uh, the root word for adolescence is adolescer, which means to grow to maturity. So adolescence is really just a season of life where you're growing from being a child to an adult and you're growing to maturity. Um, There's really two bookends of adolescence. And one is, it starts in biology. It's when puberty hits. And it ends in culture. And the fact that it ends in culture isn't a good thing, but of saying we're, our bodies naturally, and how God designed them, will kickstart into puberty when it's ready, but then there's no end point until culture affirms that you're now an adult, that adolescence is over and you should enter adulthood. So there's this opening where if we're as either parents or teachers or pastors or other young adults, if we're not setting them up well for this moment to initiate them into adulthood, it then leaves them kind of wandering, at what point is adolescence over? When am I finally, when have I grown enough to be uh, an adult? Um, So there's some confusion of adolescence, and adolescence has lengthened over the years. So back pre-1900, puberty was starting at age of 14, and then they were entering the workforce at age 16. And so they were considered, you're an adult by 16, take care of yourself, be responsible. So the season of adolescence was about a year and a half because of from 14 to 16. It was a brief window to help them transition. Um, in, the in, 1970, in the 1970s, um, probably with what was going on globally at that time too, puberty started at 13. You became an adult at 18 because of being able to enter the military, and so then it was five years. And so from 13 to 18, you were in this considered adolescence, you're growing to maturity, but at 18, you're serving your country, you're in the military, you're an adult, take care of yourself. In 2012, so it's seven years ago, I think that these uh, numbers would probably look different now, but in 2012, puberty on average is starting at 11.7. Puberty is getting younger and younger. Some of it might be just cultural things, um, diet, things that we're exposed to, could play a factor in that. Um, Some of it could also be um, the sexual exploitation on the media and just the awareness of some of those things. That could be kind of starting your body as well in puberty. There's a lot of different reasons out there. Um, But they're recognizing that puberty and sexual activity is starting younger and younger and younger. And so puberty is starting naturally around 11.7. And then in 2012, it said adulthood started in mid-20s. Not even a, let's land on a number, just mid, like how lazy is that? I was just like, man, sometime, mid-20s. That's between 23 to 27, 28, no one really knows. So the length of adolescence now is 15 years of saying, we're going to help you grow to maturity, but in 15 years, you're going to be from a child to an adult, and we're not even really sure when that's going to end. So you can see that there's some confusion of adolescence. We've just, instead of helping culture or helping young adults, Land on this is how you become an adult. Instead, we've just come up with other terms like extended adolescence and even young adult. Why don't we just say adulthood? And said, oh, now there's young adult. So, part of my title here at camp is Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministry. And people will often say, so what age, uh, when does someone age out of that? I'm like, that's a great question. No one knows. So for some reason, we've landed on like 27, 28. I don't know. I think we just picked a number. <laughs> so, As Part of this is culturally, though. On an aspirin bottle, it says that you take an adult dosage at 12. Um, At the DMV, you become an adult because you get your driver's license at 16. You can drink alcohol, which culturally is um, in some ways accepted as you're now an adult if you can drink, culturally 21. Um, To be at a movie theater and be able to watch a movie and not need some parental permission is 13 or 17, based on the movie. To vote, it's 18. To rent a car, it's 25. To stay at a hotel um, and to rent, rent one yourself is 16. To serve in the military is 18. And then to fly as an adult, it's two. So culturally... <laughs> two. yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, so it, you can see where there's some confusion of even just on our labels or in the the cultural experiences of like, oh, I'm able to vote now, or I can finally drive myself, or. If I want to have an alcoholic beverage, I can, like any of those. But then all of those numbers and ages are different. And so even then, some young adults will not know, like, when do I become a young adult or when am I an adult? When I ask a staff who care for uh, youth, any of our youth staff at Ponderosa or here at Family Camp, and I'll ask them, they're in college or post-college, so their ages are anywhere between 18 to 26. And I'll ask them, a group of like 50 of them, how many of you feel like you're an adult? There'll be maybe like three to five hands that'll put their hands up and be like, yeah, I feel like I'm an adult. Many others do this. I'm like, what does this mean? Are you like half an adult, half not? Like, what is that? (laughs) And then some that'll just be shaking their head. And when I ask them, like, well, what makes you an adult? And everyone has a different answer. It's when I'm financially independent when um, i paid my parents back for school, when I have a permanent address, when I'm married and have kids of my own, when I own a home. And so oftentimes, you know, I'll say, okay, out of half of your responses, you wouldn't then consider that I'm an adult because I'm not married or having kids or I don't own my own home, I rent. And so to realize that for many of them, everyone has a different understanding of what makes you an adult Sometimes it's the cultural experience of I've graduated from college, I'm making my own decisions, I'm living on my own. For most, it's not. I feel like I'm a conscious adult and I'm making good decisions for my life. It's all about the the experiences that they've had, not where are you at internally. What makes you an adult? So there's three stages of adolescence that we get ready for adulthood. Um, there's the beginning, there's a the middle, and then there's a the late. Really, the goal of all of this in adolescence and to grow to maturity um, is to become your own person um, and to be able to take responsibility for yourself. And so a lot of questions that students are asking, um, students and then young adults, are questions about identity, affinity, and autonomy. And so identity, who am I? What makes me me? Who do I want to be in this life? Um, Affinity, to what or to whom do I want to belong? And then autonomy, what makes me unique? And what do I have to specifically offer to the world? I think the identity question is more like a lifelong journey that we have, but it's really key in kind of setting up um, those years in the adolescence um, and young adulthood years. And so we often will theme whatever we're doing here at camp, knowing that students and young adults are asking these questions, and we set up whatever our theme is to best answer those questions in light of what the Bible says and answering those. And so, for example, our um, theme six years ago up at Ponderosa for 2013 was called Upside Down. And it was the truth in Philippians 3:20 20 and 21 that says, but you are a citizen of another kingdom and we eagerly await a savior from there. And so our tagline for that summer of what students were learning was, live like you belong to another world. And so we studied the whole book of Philippians during the course of the week at Ponderosa and it was teaching them like, you are part of God's kingdom that affects your identity but you're also, you're part of something more. You belong to him, you belong to his kingdom, so live here as you belong to his kingdom, the belonging. And so looking at identity and affinity as students are already asking a lot of those questions. Um, what's really fascinating is that uh, puberty is the second most traumatic experience that your body biologically and physiologically will experience naturally in the course of your life. Unfortunately, with the world that we live in, there is a lot of other trauma that our bodies are going to experience. Um, But the two that are for everybody, regardless of the experiences or how you grew up or what you experience in life, there's two points where your body will physiologically go through a very traumatic experience in the sense of growth really rapidly and a sudden change. The first is when you're born. (laughs) and the age of newborn to like two years old, just the rapid growth that happens of someone who's born and then months later is able to sit up, and then they're learning how to crawl, and then they're able to walk. Like It's really, really rapid in how much they're growing, but then also everything that they're learning early on in their life. The second most is that puberty. And all of a sudden, your body completely changes. There's this explosion of hormones and things that you're not used to. And all of a sudden, the world is very different, and you yourself are different in the way that you think, in how you look. And so it's the second most traumatic experience that we'll have. So you can see that for junior hires, their world has been turned upside down completely when they enter junior high. And they're going through, um, physiologically, this huge change. So what we look at is that our bodies go through three different stages following these kind of traumatic experiences. So for a, a newborn to two years old, they're in the sampling phase. They're going around and they're sampling the world they're putting everything in their mouth they're trying to touch everything they're experiencing the world in the in um, the first time ever and they're wanting to sample it all my niece callie when she was gosh maybe a little less than a year she would crawl over to the light socket and be licking the light sockets and we're like no (laughs) like that's not safe but she's just experiencing the world she wants to touch she wants to eat everything then when a three to a seven-year-old are in a testing phase, they're asking why to everything. They're like, well, why is this? They're trying to understand the world. My other niece, Kimball, she's nine now, but when she was around four, I'd watch a TV show with her, and she was asking why to everything. Why is the princess doing this? Why is her hair this way? Why is the prince sad? Why is the evil queen doing this? And I was like, dude, Kimball, just chill and watch yeah. the movie, and maybe some of your questions will be answered. But she was just asking why. She wanted to understand all these things. She was really fascinated at understanding relationships too. So you're my mom's sister, and that makes you my aunt. But my grandma is your mom. Like She was really trying to understand like how relationships worked as well. And then 8 to 10 years old, they are in the concluding stage. They've made some conclusions about life. I think an 8 to a 10 year old, they are some of the most confident people on the planet, <laughs> right? They know how the world works. They know who they want to be. Just, my, again, my niece Kimball, she's 9, she just turned 9 a couple weeks ago, and I was talking to my sister the other day, and she was saying how Kimball is just convinced that she is going to be the first female player in the NFL but then also in Major League Baseball, but then she also wants to dance professionally. So she's made up in her mind, I'm going to need a jet so that I can fly to all of these different events, and I'm going to do all of it. And Brooke and I were just talking, kind of laughing, but we're like, we love that she dreams, and we're just going to let her keep dreaming because at some point she's going to realize she's not going to be able to do all of these different things. She's going to need to choose one. But we love the fact that right now, in her mind, she's made the conclusion, yeah, I'm going to do all of it, and this is who I'm going to be. They're in the concluding phase. So how is it that those very confident 8 to 10-year-olds who know who they are, who know who their friends are, why is it that then they enter junior high and it is the timid and insecure and awkward junior hires walking into middle school? Where did those confident 10-year-olds go? It's because all of a sudden, puberty has hit. Their world is turned upside down. Nothing makes sense anymore. The way that they think is different. They're moving from concrete thought to abstract. Their bodies are literally different. None of their clothes fit anymore. They smell weird. They feel awkward with their friends. All of a sudden, they're back in the sampling stage. So when I tell this to staff, I say it doesn't give us excuse to treat our junior high students like they're toddlers. That's not what we're doing, but more to recognize the frame of mind where they're at is similar to the world is somehow different and not as stable, and they're sampling all of it again. And so for some of our junior high students, true story, a number of years ago at Ponderosa, a junior high student ate a poisonous plant and had a very strong allergic reaction. And so my boss at the time, this was years ago, he was on the phone with UC Davis Medical Center trying to identify this plant and how to help this kid. And, you know, the blisters, it was just awful. The poor guy was in so much pain. And so my boss asked him, like, what, what were you thinking? Are you, did someone put you up to this? Were you being bullied? Are you not getting enough food at camp that you're eating the foliage? And he was just like, hmm, eh, seemed like a good idea. And we're like... All right, well, let's not eat the plants. Um, But they're just sampling. Junior hires are incredibly bright. I love learning from junior hires. But they are sampling the world in a way where they're trying to understand their body and their place in this world since everything feels different and new. When I was in junior high, I was this tall. And I shot up this tall really, really quickly. And so in my mind, I'm a very tall person. Even though I know I'm not, but at a young developmental stage, I was the tall girl. I was a tall one on my soccer team. I was taller than all the boys. Um, And there was one soccer game. I'd grown up playing a lot of soccer, but there was one soccer game where I just could not stay on my feet. And my parents and my coach were like, Kels, tie your cleats. What's going on? Something that I was so used to and felt pretty good at. All of a sudden, I couldn't do something just as basic as running to the ball. It was because I wasn't used to my height. All of a sudden, something that I was familiar with felt incredibly different because I didn't know how to function in this new body that I had. So then after the sampling comes the testing. So high school students are asking why to everything. They're not doing it as innocently as some 3- to 7-year-olds are doing it, but they're asking why and they're testing. They're testing you, they're testing the world around them to better understand how it works. Um, many times for a high school week at Ponderosa, when I come out for a junior high week and I'll come out to introduce students to the theme and they're just excited for everything and they're just they love the counselors immediately they're just excited for a high school week it's a little quieter and it's a lot of this and I can see some of them are like you know this looks kind of cool and Okay, I kind of like see my counselor and they seem pretty cool, but they won't admit it until like Tuesday. And so we do a lot of programming to intentionally help them feel more comfortable at camp and to break down some of the walls that they put up. Um, They're testing and that's okay. That's just part of how they're trying to understand the world. When I was in high school, I remember going to Ross to buy some clothes And I remember trying on, it was the Avril Lavigne era, so it was a lot of like the skater uh, belts, like the really like chunky belts and like the skater tops and everything. And so I remember putting on, trying on a different outfit and I remember kind of thinking in the mirror, I'm like, this is it, this is me. I finally found myself. I need to throw away all my clothes and I'm only gonna buy anything that looks like this. Because in my mind, I was trying on not just clothes, but who do I wanna be? And so for a lot of high school students, they are trying on these different hats, but the hats are of their personalities, their interests, their friend groups. They're trying to better understand, does this feel like me? Do I like who I am when I'm behaving this way? Does this feel natural? They're also testing to see, how do my friends respond to me? How do the people that I'm interested in respond to me? How do my parents, teachers, do they accept me more when I behave this way or when I look this way? They're trying on these different hats, testing the world to see who they want to be, but then also how they're received by others. And if they're not received well by others, then it either reinforces that they want to do it if they're rebellious, or it's, I don't want to be that way because it's not accepted. My friends don't like me when I'm dressing this type of way. And so they're testing the world around them. And so for many high school students, the best thing that we can do for them is just to love them regardless. And so we do that for our our youth staff of saying no matter how testy some of our high school students will be your role is to love them and to pursue them and let them know that no matter what they do to try to push you away you're still going to love them and be there for them and then that leads to young adults and young adults are then entering the concluding stage that's where we get to finally young adults they've gone through the sampling and the testing and all of a sudden they've arrived at the concluding stage and they can are able to start making some conclusions about this world that they live in, who they want to be, and what they want to do about it. Um, One of the things that has been the the more frustrating of moments, you might think it's moments with a rebellious junior high or high school student, and it's actually been conversations with young adults. It has been one of the harder parts of my job, Um, the moments when I get the most frustrated, or when I'm just like peeved a little bit. And the reason for it is because um, what I often will tell staff interns is you're in the concluding stage and it is necessary for you to start making some decisions of who you want to be, how you want to live, and what you have to offer this world. But the key ingredient to do this well is teachability. And if you're not being teachable, you're going to miss something. And that's been one of the more frustrating parts of some of my conversations with them when at 19 they will um, come have a conversation with me or I'll see them having a conversation with others and say, Yeah, I took a class um, last year about this topic at school and communications, and I really think the world and adults are doing this awful job at doing these, and we really need to be more aware of this. And so if any of you want to come talk to me, I've become kind of an expert in this topic because I took a class for six months. (laughs) (laughs) Some of that is a little exaggerated, but also some of that comes from literally a comment that was made during staff training just like six weeks ago. And I remember thinking in my mind like, oh, Concluding stage, concluding stage. And so I will often say to them, I'll take a deep breath myself, and affirm you're making some conclusions. You're recognizing that you're interested and that you're passionate about something. That is so good. You're realizing that you have something to contribute, something to offer. That is so needed. Stay teachable. Realize that there's always more for you to learn, that you'll never have it figured it out, and that there's always going to be more for you to grow and adapt in. So teachability is key. In going through all of those different stages, for junior hires, they are looking at what are we doing. So we schedule and we program a lot of those things to be meeting that. For, for high school, their meaning and their significance is in relationships with each other. They develop a lot of significance for themselves and others based on relationships. And for young adults, the key ingredient is the purpose and the significance of why things are the way that they are. Um, we need to challenge some of their questions. Um, when I was in college myself, I remember my freshman year having a conscious thought: when I graduate in three and a half years, I want to know what theological views I have and some of the theological differences within the church. I want to better understand um, how I want to vote on all these different key topics. I'm going to have like a really solid financial plan, and I'm going to have like a budget. I am going to know exactly like all these. The answers to all these questions, as if by the time I was 22, I was never going to learn something new ever again. <laughs> and I needed to have my life figured out to a T so that I would be heading off into my adult years never to learn again. But it was this conscious thought of thinking, I'm going to have it all figured out by the time I graduate. And then three and a half years later, I walked across the stage and I got a very, very uh, expensive piece of paper that said I was good at something, and realized that I had far more questions than I had answers. I felt everything had been deconstructed, and fortunately, I um, surrounded myself with people who were able to put some of those building blocks back together, Um, but having people around me, older people and younger people, to help me do that was a really necessary key uh, part of it, especially when it came to faith. I went to a Christian school, and I left with more questions than I had answered. Um, I think that's important in college, but what happens after college, I think, is just as important in helping to rebuild some of those things. I wasn't abandoning my faith. I came and worked at Mount (laughs) Hermon. I knew I believed in God, but I just didn't know how some of these things lined up. I didn't know answers to some of the big questions. So I had this really long reading list because I wanted to figure it out. I started as an intern here at Mount Hermon, so I was then in community with people having to figure this out rather than putting it up on the shelf and dealing with it later. And I realized I need to go back to basics. There's a lot of different thoughts out there and at some point I'll get to those books, but I think I just need to remember what does the Bible say? (laughs) Who is Jesus? I went back to just reading my Bible. I was also an art student and I did kind of the same thing of, I just need to go back to being an artist for the sake of being an artist, not for a grade. And so there are certain things that I need to kind of rebuild in my own life, but faith was a big part of it. I've seen a lot of people not want to abandon their faith, but more of I don't know what to do with all these questions. I have all these building blocks. I'm not really sure how they fit together, so I'm just going to put it up on the shelf. And then at some point I'll take it back down, but it just seems a little too overwhelming right now. And so I think there's a lot of young adults who have left the church, not because they don't love Jesus, not because they don't believe in him, but because they don't really know what to do with some of these questions and are not being surrounded by people who are helping them in the process of figuring out the answers to that in the concluding stage. Some of the things that um, have really helped in just my own knowledge as well as understanding of how to best care for summer staff and interns who are in the college and post-college years um, there have been a couple of resources. They're not necessarily Christian books or written from a Christian perspective. I think one of them is a Christian author, but she writes from a secular perspective. Um, they're still really great resources. And so one of them is Defining Decade. It's one that I mentioned earlier. Um, it's written by Dr. Meg J. J. A. Y. And um, she talks about the 20s in her um, experience as a therapist. Um, she looks at how many people are treating their 20s as the extended adolescence to go have fun, to go adventure, to do all these fun things, and then all of a sudden, they turn 30, and they realize, oh, my dream job isn't just going to fall on my lap. I actually needed to work for it and to spend years getting the experience for it and put myself, um, like, put my foot in the door and actually work hard at something. Same with relationships. All of a sudden, that at 30, do I want to settle down, do I want to get married, do I want to have kids? And the timeline sometimes starts to freak them out once they turn 30, and so looking at, how do you spend your 20s? And she looks at work, love and relationships, and then the brain and the body, and how our brains are still developing at early 20, and how that affects um, our biology. So the defining decade. The other one is called Extreme Ownership, and it's by um, uh, two Navy SEALs named Jocko Willink, Jocko, J-O-C, k-o and then willing w-i-l-l-i-n-k and then leaf babin l-e-i-f b-a-b-i-n leaf babin they write from a military perspective they're very highly decorated navy seals who um, uh, in their experience in the war in afghanistan uh, came back and learned that they needed to retrain the current Navy SEALs for what they were going to actually be experiencing over um, with the war on terrorism. So it is a grim book in the sense that they um, pull some of their own experiences in the war. Um, And so I sometimes will give that caution in reading it because they do pull from that experience and everyone has a different view or opinion about the military and the war and things like that. It's not a book about war though. It's not a book about the military. It's not to be pro or con. It's nothing like that. Um, it's not political it's more of the leadership principles that they learned on the battlefield they recognize that the root of those are leadership principles that can be applied in any area of life and so how do you take extreme ownership in business in your relationships in your life in your parenting and so it's from the leadership perspective it's probably one of the best leadership books i've read in years um I, extreme ownership um but again, they pull originally from from their own experiences and then um, boil it down to, to business and um, civilian life. Um, but I think that piece of ownership, I think when people talk about adulting and they've turned becoming an adult as a verb, of, oh, I just can't adult right now. Adulting is hard today. <laughs> it's like, all right, um, we'll just roll with it. But I think what they're meaning, I think really at the root of it, is a sense of taking ownership. And I think that's where I've learned a lot from extreme ownership, not just in leadership, but I think it's one that we need to talk about more with young adults. Because many of them are just waiting for something to happen. Or if it's not bringing them immense joy right away, they're trying something new. And so they're hopping from one relationship to the next, from one career to the next, because they're either overwhelmed at their choices, or it's not making them feel um, all the things that they want to feel. They don't feel appreciated and valued. So rather than working hard, they're just giving up and moving to something else. Um, So I think ownership, recognizing to take ownership for your own life, for ownership of what is within your responsibility, I think that is an ingredient we need to talk about more when it comes to young adults. How are you taking ownership in this situation, in this relationship, in your career path, in church, and being part of the kingdom of God here on earth? How are you taking ownership in those things? And I think that's the key ingredient um, when people are talking about adulting, that we need to lean into a little bit more with them. Um, one of the things that, um, that helped me, and I don't think my parents necessarily like, made this a thing that they were going to do, it just kind of happened, um, but when I became an intern here at Mount Hermon, um, I went home for a weekend just to visit my family, and while I was at home, my mom took me around to all of the places, AAA, maybe the DMV, my uh, phone company, and she put everything in my name, and it was, you're now receiving a paycheck, so now you're going to start paying for some of these things. And so it was just kind of like a normal like day. we were going to go do some errands. But I've reflected on that, of how that really set me up to recognize, oh, it's now my responsibility. I need to, like, these are things in my name. I'm not in a family plan. I'm like, this is a bill that now comes to my address, and I've chosen to be here at Mount Hermon, and this is where I live and where I'm going to put roots. So just being able to put something in my own name and have the bill be addressed to me in some way really helped me feel like, okay, now I'm an adult. I'm doing adult-like things, like paying bills and getting groceries. There was something where that really was a significant thing that my mom did for me. My parents did a really great job, I, I realized more recently, how they had a significant moment with each of us, my siblings and I, in each of those three times of sampling, testing, and concluding. At junior high, before I hit puberty, my mom took me away on a weekend. She told me about the wonders of life (laughs) and what to expect with puberty um, coming. This is what it's gonna be like. We went to get new clothes, to get facial uh, wash for for when my skin was gonna break out. She talked me through what it was like to to grow into being an adult, and my dad did it with my brother. And then at high school, my dad took me out on a date, my mom took my brother out, and it was to learn what does it look like to show respect, to receive respect, and how um, a gentleman should treat you on a date, or how a woman should treat my brother when he's on a date. And then at young adult, they took me around town and put everything in my name. And I realized that those created three milestones in my brain and in my own life of at these these, uh, crucial points of change and growth, my parents inserted themselves and were part of that process and had sometimes uncomfortable but necessary conversations with me at each of those points. And I hope that if I have kids one day, those are practices I'm going to adopt as well. Because I think it set me up for success in some ways, but it also allowed me to know when I have questions or when I don't feel like I'm doing this well, I can go to my parents and I can ask them about it. Um, I chose in my mid to late 20s to go see a counselor People have different views on Christianity and therapy and um, psychology and things like that, and everyone has their opinions on it. For myself, it was one of the most healthy things that I've done as an adult was to go see a Christian counselor because I needed to kind of process some of the things that were going on in my life, things that I hadn't really processed since I was younger, but patterns I had continued um, into my adult relationships from like learned behavior when I was a kid um, I had a speech impediment when I was little, and so I would act out to get what I needed rather than using words. I then went through speech therapy, learned how to talk, but that pattern of behavior of acting out to get what I needed continued, and I realized that that was such a learned behavior that was so deeply rooted in my psyche that I needed to kind of unpack that a little bit more. So I went and saw a, a Christian counselor, and during that time I went home to, I saw her for about four years, um, and during that time was processing a lot of like family dynamics and things like that, And I went home for a weekend, and I was really, really upset with um, some changes in our family dynamic, and my parents had decided to take another family member in, my uncle. Um, And for myself, I had my own reasons of just, like, not wanting that to happen, and not because he wasn't a good person or because I felt unsafe. It was nothing like that. It was more of my family dynamic is changing. And now there's going to be another person living here. And so um, there were just a lot of deeply rooted things that my, my parents, with the other adults in the family, they had you know, processed all together throughout the years. But as kids, we didn't necessarily know some of those family dynamics. And so now as an adult, seeing them make a choice and realizing that that was going to affect me, and I didn't like the choice. And so I went home to my parents to have a conversation with them. And I was emotional, and my mom just received it so well, and she said, you know, Gary, who's my dad, why don't you come in? So the three of us had a conversation, and I was able to express to them the things that I was upset about, and the things that I felt um, uncertain about. And in mid-20s, that's a lot of things feel uncertain. And so I was able to kind of talk with them and hear them out, and I've since shared with them, they were doing the right thing. They were being Jesus in a really hard moment in my uncle's life. Um, It was good that I was able to express that to my parents and to be able to have a healthy conversation with them. Um, But I've been able to since gain some perspective and say, you guys are right. And I don't think I approached it in the right way, but I'm still really glad that we were able to have that conversation because it was one of the first times as a young adult that I felt like I had arrived at the adult table and I was no longer at the kids' table with the holidays and that my parents and my aunt, my uncle, my grandma, that they were suddenly like kind of putting an expansion into the table and allowing more of us to sit there. And for my siblings and all my cousins, for us to feel like we now have a place at the adult table in these conversations that are happening within our family. And so um, that's been something that I learned in counseling was a family learns how to do a dance together and everyone knows their part and everyone kind of knows the routine. But then as someone grows to maturity and becomes an adult, maybe they want to do a different kind of dance, and they're going to make a decision to move maybe in a different way. And for everyone to kind of do the dance together, everyone has to relearn it at that point. And so it's that kind of visual of every time that there's a new person kind of added to the adult table or added to the dance, they need to make a choice of how that they want to live. But it is going to affect the others in the family. and so. Um, I saw that for myself in feeling like I had finally um, been given a space at the adult table with my family. But I also watched as my younger sister went through it. As a baby of the family, she had three older siblings um, who were all, you know, we'd be sitting at our dinner table just saying everything that we'd want to say and kind of interacting with each other. And she was just kind of along for the ride. She was just kind of like nod, she was always just kind of there. So um, she was just carted around every soccer game and everything. Um, but then when she went away to college and she came back and all of us were just, you know, for the holiday kind of doing what we would normally do, and all of a sudden when she would speak up and be like, actually I don't think that's right. This is my opinion. And all of us would just kind of stop and be like, huh. <laughs> yeah, there's someone new here. And She's been here the whole time, but she was growing as an adult and so it took for us to also make space for then her to become the adult that she wanted to be and for us to relearn the dance with her. Um, and so in, in all of this, I think the things that I really appreciated my parents did was how they helped define these growing moments with me. But they also kept conversations. And I think it required me to have some good conversations with them and for them to have good conversations with me. One last story and then I'll open it up if there's any questions. Um, And my mom knows that I tell this story. Um, There was one, a number of years ago, I went home again for another weekend just to spend time with my parents. And um, for some reason, a bill had come to my parents' house rather than to my address here. And so my mom had seen that there was something that I needed to pay. And so she asked me a couple of different times over the course of the weekend, like, Kelsey, do you want me, like, are, are you doing okay? Do you need to borrow any money? Do you want me to drop this off at the post office for you? And I was like, Mom, I'll take care of it. Mom, I'll take care of it. I just kept telling her, and she kept bringing it up. And so I was getting more frustrated every time that she brought it up. And so I finally was like, rather than just be frustrated and act out, I should just tell her and maybe just, like, see, why is this making me so frustrated? I shouldn't be responding this frustrated. But also, what is it, like, She's is she really concerned about something? What else is going on from her perspective? So at, at some point, I finally just told her, like, Mom, I'm getting a little frustrated. I know that you're wanting to help me, but I'm an adult. I take care of my bills. I know I'm not right now, but I do. <laughs> like, any of the other things, like, like, I take care of myself in Santa Cruz. I eat salads. I exercise. I, I take care of myself. And I feel like you continue to bring this up, and I'm getting frustrated because it feels like you're not treating me as an adult." And she heard it. She was really, really gracious. She was kind of like, I just want to help. I don't want to see you have to pay a fine when I could do something that will help. And I was like, yeah, I get it, but maybe that's how I need to learn. Maybe if I have to pay some atrocious fine, then I'll be more on time next time. And she just nodded. She was like, all right, you're right. You're an adult. You can make your choices. And if you need to suffer the consequences, then that's your choice as well. But then she kind of smiled and she said, Kelsey, I wonder though if you have kids one day if you'd have the same response. And at that point I was like, yeah. (laughs) And it was a good check for me of realizing I don't know what it's like to be in her shoes. I know what it's like to be a young adult, but I don't know what it's like to give birth to something and to watch it grow and to take care of it physically for so many years and then all of a sudden to let it fly free. I don't know what that process is like. And so to give her the benefit of the doubt to give her grace and love realizing that she's in this process just as much as i am she's learning how to let me be an adult um, while i will always be her child though i'm not a child's age and i need to also learn how to be an adult and how to best take care of myself and to express that to my parents too and so um she knows that i was going to share that story she sat here while i told that story and i again told her afterwards how um, i wish i had responded differently to her in that in that w- in that way um because i don't know what it's like to be in her shoes and to be a mom and so um so i have a few other things that i'll say at the very very end but um what questions do you guys have comments um i know that there's parents here as well you probably have uh, much more information than i can give in that perspective of things too yes have you written a book yet? oh <laughs> no i haven't oh Oh. Thank you. Thank you so much. I um I've always been fascinated with words. I I read all the time and so it's something that I've considered at one point but um yeah, a lot of it is just things that I've been coached and learned from a lot of much more wise people than I, so thank you. Yeah, that's what I actually just ordered three last, <laughs> last week. So I recommend because people have told me that they're really great books. Um, I haven't yet read them, so I can't give a personal recommendation, but the three that I just recently purchased, one is called iGen, and it's about um, the current generation and trends of social media. The other one is um, The Coddling of the American Mind, And so it looks a little bit more at how we're creating such a safe space and what the effects are of that for students. And then the other one is called the shallows. And it's what the internet is doing to our minds and how it's actually affecting the chemistry and the chemicals in our our brains to um, behave and do things differently. So those are three. but then, yeah, there's a number of others. And um, the defining decade and extreme ownership have been huge in, um, but specifically, when it comes to generation and young adults um, and like current information, I think those three um, I bought specifically to learn more. Yeah, I think um, I think some of that is like the testing and concluding kind of morph into itself a little. Um, and so they're not as clear-cut uh, segments of time. So some of the testing and the concluding kind of go hand in hand. And so, um, and especially when it comes to faith. And so kind of testing the, well, I really like these parts of the Bible. And I know that I believe in this. I'm not really sure. There's a lot of questions that students have right now in young adults about, like, well, the Bible doesn't talk specifically about weed. Okay, well, <laughs> we could also learn from other things that the Bible says of either sexual activity or substance abuse or things like that. But because there isn't a specific verse in the Bible that talks about it, it gives a little bit more room of, well, is it then culture that should decide whether we should do that or not? Is that the Bible? Um, So there's a lot of gray area that I think a lot of young adults are sitting in and trying to figure out what are things that I feel convicted about? Um, What does that look like? My friends might have different convictions than I do, but we both believe in the same God and the same Bible. So I think they're just trying to figure it out. And so I think figuring it out comes from also experiencing it. And then seeing, again, like, how does this make me feel? Um, how, when I behave in this type of way or when I'm in this environment, it's still kind of the testing it out. Um, and I think, I think another piece um, that's interesting is I hear a lot within Christian culture of students, well, God loves me, and he just wants me to be happy. And thinking like that, yes, God loves you, but he doesn't just want you to be happy. And so I think that there's a lot of behavior in a, a variety of different ways where um, young adults are thinking, well, this makes me happy, and God wants me to be happy, so therefore it should be okay. When it's known, Jesus says, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He's come to give us life and life abundantly, but that doesn't mean that he's given us everything. Some of This is kind of a a tangent. I could talk more about it. But how in God's perfect design, in Genesis 1 and 2, in his perfect design, in perfect world, there were boundaries. And there was something in the garden for us to not have. And I've shared that with some Ponderosa students just a couple weeks ago, saying in God's perfect world, he never designed for us to have it all. But he did give us all of himself. And I think that has been switched in some way in culture of well, God just wants me to be happy and he wants me to have everything that I want. When some of the things that we may want are things that he doesn't want us to have because it's not for our our good. And so that's where I've been really leaning into, like pointing back to Genesis 1 and 2 of God gave boundaries. He gave lines. He also gave us all of himself and said you can't have it all. And so for us to carry that into our Christian life um, here on earth as well. So I think it's, it might be something to do with culturally and cultural Christianity that isn't biblical, but the culture of Christianity in America, it's a lot of uh, roots in happiness as opposed to truth. So could be something there to kind of explore with her. Other questions? Yeah, right back here. Yeah, that was a journey i had to go through too um i tell students that for them to continue growing closer to jesus when they leave from camp and to not have it just be a mountaintop experience for the week is that they need to stay connected to god's word and god's people and so at one point i realized i'm not connected to god's people within the church i serve here at mount Hermon, so i'm connected with them on a daily basis <laughs> but i'm not currently serving in a church And that was something that I felt really convicted about. And so um, I then joined a church and I started um, volunteering in a youth group. Um, I think for, I think, again, it kind of goes back to um, either kind of two parts. One, it doesn't really make them happy or there's other things that they'd rather be doing. Um, So I think there's some of that. I think it's also they've seen... um, kind of the black spot on the church or how people have been burned by the church. or And that's such a broad term. I kind of hate using that because there, uh, there's a lot of good that the church is currently doing um, and that God is doing through the church. But I think there are, are many instances where people can point to and say that's what's wrong with Christianity today is because of individuals in a church that are making those decisions and how that affects the overall view of the church as well. So I think there's some of that. I think in the rebelling of, I want to do something different. I want to connect with God's people, but in a different way. Um, And either experiencing home churches or small groups or life groups, but they won't attend Sunday morning. I think some of that is just the figuring out of also taking ownership of saying, how do I live as a Christian knowing that as a Christian, I'm part of a greater whole rather than individually. And with the millennials and Gen Z, so much is the narcissism of they have an audience. They um, A lot of everything is a catered to what makes them happy. So for them to have a shift of worldview of, I'm a Christian, and I'm part of a much bigger whole, I think to start the conversation there, to then recognize, so there's a part of us that needs to take ownership of, as a Christian, I'm part of the church. What am I doing to best serve the church rather than distancing myself and pointing the finger at everyone doing something wrong, how do I step into it and want to enact some change in my own way of taking ownership in that? So I think it's kind of tied in a lot of those different areas. All right, well, I'll stay back for if anyone has other questions, but the one thing that I would leave you with to give some hope (laughs) is that um, I will sometimes have my parents or others will say like, man, students today, There's, you know, a rise in suicide, a rise in anxiety. The world is just falling apart. And where, like, what is the church going to look like when in 20 or 30 years, the current Gen Z are then those who are in leadership of the church and placed in those positions. And what I will often say to people is, I wish that you could see a Ponderosa Forum session. or I wish you could see what happens in Forest View here at the Fieldhouse. Because there are students... And there are young adults who are with them who just passionately love Jesus and are growing closer with him. And so they, I have great hope for the current state of the church because students and young adults are just as much a part of it as anyone else. But I also have great hope because God is doing incredible things in the lives of students. And there are many who are passionately following him and serving him. So God's taken care of us this far and he'll take care of us the rest of the way too. So, yeah. All right, thank you. Thank you.